The time is now. Volume 6, episode 118, this is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, your host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. What crazy times we are living in right now. A global pandemic, social justice movements, battles over individual freedoms, and balancing competing interests on issues such as gun control and now most recently abortion rights. All of this against a backdrop of a society that just seems to be more angry and more divided with less and less middle ground being able to be considered, particularly at all levels of government. All of which as well has had an impact on the workplace and the relationship between employers and employees. Today I wanted to address the latest, the United States Supreme Court's decision on Friday, June 24th, 2022 to reverse Roe v. Wade and rule that there is no federal constitutional right to have an abortion. The decision was leaked in draft form back in February and I think perhaps some held out the hope that the final version might change. It did not. Now, today's episode is not about the religious, moral, ethical, or even political aspect of the abortion issue. What I want to talk about today is the legal decision itself and what it may mean for employers. Now, this came up, the Supreme Court decision came up in the context of one state's attempt, the state of Mississippi, to restrict abortions. It is the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, which essentially says that nobody is permitted to intentionally or knowingly perform or induce an abortion if you are able to determine that the gestational age of the unborn human being is more than 15 weeks old. Put simply, the United States Supreme Court on June 24th overruled Roe versus Wade and overruled Planned Parenthood versus Casey and found that the United States Constitution does not confer a right to abortion and the authority to regulate abortion has to be returned to the state level, to the state's people and their elected representatives. What does that mean? Well, by way of background, we have essentially been spending the last half a century understanding this issue through two of its most recent cases. First, in uh, 1973, of course, from Roe versus Wade, where the Supreme Court ruled 
that the constitutional right to privacy that it determined existed included a woman's right to terminate her pregnancy. As a result of Roe versus Wade, there was this nationwide, this federal constitutional right to abortion as a result. In 1992, the United States Supreme Court issued its decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And in Casey, the Supreme Court reaffirmed the Roe decision. Some might say Casey made things a little bit more clear because the Roe versus Wade decision had essentially been a decision that created a trimester structure that determined that there was a fetal viability 24 weeks into pregnancy. Roe versus Wade found that there was a right to abortion under the United States Constitution founded in this right to privacy that it believed was premised on the 1st, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments of the United States. The Supreme Court's Casey decision essentially focused that right to privacy as coming more from this notion of liberty, individual liberty, that was granted to everybody in the United States Constitution's 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause. Well, on June 24th, 2022, the United States Supreme Court in the Dobbs case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, it ruled in a 6-3 to three majority decision to reverse the lower court ruling in Dobbs and in a 5-4 count decided to overturn Roe versus Wade as well as Planned Parenthood versus Casey which had the effect of removing federal protection of abortion grounded in the United States Supreme Court. The majority decision in the Dobbs, in the Dobbs case which was uh, authored by Justice Alito, and it was joined by Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, found that abortion is not explicitly protected by the United States Constitution. They determined that abortion is not mentioned in the Constitution, nor is it implicitly protected by the Fourth Amendment's Due Process Clause as a matter of right because in order to find something is protected under that clause, it must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. It must be implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And the court found, with respect to abortion, that neither of those were the case. That abortion was not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. In fact, if anything, at least the court said, prior to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, many, if not most states, found abortion to be a criminal act. So abortion itself, the court found, was not deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition, and it was not implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. They also found that the concept of stare decisis 
where subsequent courts are required to follow the precedent of earlier decisions could not save Roe versus Wade or the Casey decision because they were not reasonably decided, the Dobbs Supreme Court said. Roe versus Wade in particular, the Supreme Court said, was not grounded in any constitutional text, history, or precedent. And so going forward, the Supreme Court in Dobbs held that there is going to be some rational basis review as the standard to apply when they are deciding issues involving state abortion regulations as a matter of constitutional law. So that a state law attempting to regulate abortion must be sustained if there is some rational basis, only if there is some rational basis on which the state legislature thought that regulating abortion would serve legitimate state interests. And using that somewhat diminished standard, the Supreme Court ruled that because the Mississippi law, the Mississippi Gestational Age Act, was supported by reasonable findings by the Mississippi legislature, including that state's asserted interest in protecting the life of the unborn, the Supreme Court determined that those stated legitimate interests on the state level provided a rational basis for Mississippi's Gestational Age Act, and therefore the Mississippi law regulating abortion would stand. Now, there are really two takeaways. People may agree or people may disagree with this concept, but this Supreme Court decision in Dobbs was not really about, at least on its face, I mean, putting aside whatever, again, religious, moral, ethical, or political leanings the justices may have had. On its face, the decision does not talk about whether abortion is good, bad, right, wrong. On its face, what the decision is doing is saying it is the states and not the federal constitution that has the authority to determine this abortion issue, notwithstanding the precedent that existed from the Roe versus Wade and the Casey decision. What the Dobbs case said is that the states, and more specifically, the elected officials in those states, are the ones who should decide this issue. Now again, I'm not saying whether I agree or disagree with the decision. Those debates are for a different time and a different place. But ironically, this Supreme Court is saying that the Dobbs decision is in fact more supportive of a democracy where citizens are forced to persuade others, where citizens are forced to build a coalition and then elect representatives who will legislate based on the will of the majority so that the citizens of states are required to persuade others to build a coalition within their states and then elect state representatives to address the abortion issue. The Supreme Court is now saying in Dobbs that it is not a matter of the federal constitution to decide whether abortion should be allowed or not. The majority of the Supreme Court can be said to be strict constructionists. 
taking a strict interpretation of the Constitution, which is an interpretation that looks at the language of the Constitution and what was meant at the time that the particular constitutional amendment at issue became law, as opposed to interpreting the Constitution as being a fluid document, somehow changing with developing society and its mores. There is really so much to unpeel here, so many issues that warrant, frankly, so much more time than this episode is devoting to it. But because we are employment law now, I do want to focus on the impact of the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision on employers and employees and the workplace in 2022. Helping me do that today is a fantastic panel of three of my colleagues here at Cozen O'Connor. David Barron, who is a member with me in the Labor and Employment Department, where he advises and represents management side companies in all aspects of traditional labor and employment law matters. Rob Kaplan, who is a member of our Employee Benefits and Executive Compensation Practice Group, where he advises public and private companies, boards of directors, comp committees, and government entities on, among other things, the design, compliance, and operation of qualified retirement plans, health and welfare plans, non-qualified plans, and other ERISA and benefits-related issues. And Chris Raffley, who is the co-chair of our firm's healthcare practice group, where he provides transactional and regulatory advice to hospitals, health systems, accountable care organizations, physicians, professional liability insurers, and other provider organizations on a wide array of health care and privacy matters. Thank you all for uh, joining us today. Such a uh, crazy couple of weeks and uh, obviously a significant issue for people individually as well as companies. Um, So, David, I want to start with you first. From a purely legal standpoint, it seems like this Dobbs decision is in some respects very much like the Supreme Court's vaccine decision. We know the ideology and the religious and political leanings of the liberals and conservatives on the court. Do you agree, though, that this decision is very much about who has the authority to regulate the abortion issue and less on its face about whether abortion itself is right or wrong? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of where the court has gone here is they've pointed this issue back to the states. Um, You know, whichever side of the aisle you're on, the bottom line is that we're going to have different rules from state to state, which unfortunately just seems to be the trend in employment law right now. Right. Like there's just less and less of a federal uniform uh, structure to employment law. And we're, we just keep ending up with these really hot button issues being left to states or even localities. And, you know, multi-state employers are now in a position where, you know, that you may have employees in some states where abortion is legal and in other states where it's not, which just creates a lot of practical problems. No question. And so, you know, what are your thoughts on this decision from a labor and employment standpoint? Again, at a 30,000 foot level, before we get into some of the specifics here and uh, some of the takeaways, I mean, what was your reaction to the decision? Um, You know, well, again, as an employer, I think it's just we're in a very divisive time. I mean, to me, the big issue is, I mean, this is about as tough of a time for for us as a country and as an employer with just human beings in, in general. And now we have just one more issue that's out there to potentially divide a workplace. And I think that creates, you know, some, some interesting questions and continuing issues on things like social media, 
And, you know, should employers get involved? If they do, what are the ramifications of that politically within the, the culture and the, in their workplace with unionization? It just, it just stirs things up. And for most employers, they're, 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 you know, they've had enough of things being stirred up over the last couple of years. And it's just, you know, one more thing to add to the mix. That's a great tease because we're going to get to those specific issues. Uh, so keep on listening. We'll get there. Chris. Yeah, I was just, we were chatting a little bit before we, we got on and uh, just remarking how this issue more than any other, you know, there's been a lot of issues. David talked about state by state differences and we've seen like medical marijuana come in, but I don't think any of us can recall an issue that state by state and seems to be really pitting each other state against state where states are getting into other states' business. I just heard, for example, Delaware just is considering, I just heard the blurb this morning, things are coming out so quickly, is considering a law that would prohibit release of uh, pregnancy termination information to providers in states that have outlawed uh, those procedures. So uh, I can't recall where we've had, you know, really states almost pitted against each other. It's been pretty much live or let live. They, they legalize marijuana. Don't bring it over to our state if we don't have it, but whatever, we're not going to penalize people for going over, you know, and participating in legal marijuana, you know, as long as they don't drive back, coming back to our state. I haven't heard of that happening. This is, you know, at a much, much higher level. So I've never seen anything like this. That's a great point. We are definitely escalating uh, the dispute and the heat uh, over this uh, issue uh, between and among the states. So you think you're exactly right. I mean, Rob, uh, before, again, we get into some of the specific issues, I'm also interested in your high-level reaction to the Dobbs decision from uh, from your benefits practice standpoint. Yeah, it, it's been really interesting because people sort of thought this was coming because there was the leaked opinion from a couple of weeks ago. And still, ever since the Dobbs decision came out, employers have been largely reacting and surprised at it. Um I think the biggest surprise, it's also an opportunity that employers have been surprised they don't know what their plan covers and what it doesn't cover. And they've been surprised to hear that not all plans cover abortion. Um, And so I think everyone's been reviewing what they cover and what they don't cover and what they want to do on a go-forward basis. No question. And uh, I guess that begs the question then, I mean, do all health plans cover abortions? Right. So... Not all health plans cover abortions, and and there isn't much out there of what uh, what plans have to cover and what does not what plans do not have to cover. Under the Affordable Care Act, um, small plans and fully insured plans have have a list of essential health benefits that must be covered. Um, abortion was not one of the essential health benefits, and as a result, um, no plans have to cover abortion. Some cover it, and some do not. Well, and we are quickly, and I guess so one of the early takeaways is companies should probably take a look at their health plans and just get a handle on what is covered and what isn't covered in this area. Correct. And and I know we'll talk about travel expenses, but both get a hold of their health plans of whether the plan covers travel expenses or not outside of abortion, uh, as well as whether their plans cover abortion or not. And so let's go there. We are quickly seeing a growing list of companies announce that they will provide for travel and related expenses to make it easier for employees to get abortion related uh, care if they find themselves in a state that restricts or even outright bans abortions. 
So does it matter as a threshold question, I guess, does it matter if an employer uh, offers those benefits through its insurance plan as uh, opposed to just, say, a normal workplace handbook policy? So the answer is yes, it makes a huge difference. And my first piece of advice is not to offer any kind of travel reimbursement that's specific for abortion or reproductive care um, through a handbook policy or just outside of a medical plan. Um, The reason is there's a ton of compliance issues uh, with implementing any kind of health program outside of a medical plan. It would be very difficult to do that. Um, And the, the reason is... If you do that, you've accidentally created a new health plan that's subject to ERISA. Um, once you have a health plan that's subject to ERISA that comes with an annual 5500 filing, which is sort of the tax filing that the plan has to make every year, and then you have a ton of other compliance-related issues, including COBRA and HIPAA, and suddenly you have to offer employees who terminate COBRA for just that one travel policy, and it makes it very difficult. Um, so the advantage of running a travel reimbursement program through the company's existing health plan is that all of the compliance issues that go along with offering a health plan are already in your health plan with your medical plan provider, COBRA, HIPAA, the Mental Health Parity Act, and and the Affordable Care Act compliance and everything else in between. It always gets dangerous when I uh, ask another lawyer to describe what a particular statute is and means, but I'm going to try to do that here. Um, Without us getting too much into the legal and the technical weeds, let's at least get on the same page with some of the terms we're using, and I guess some of the acronyms that uh, we labor and employment lawyers like to use, since there is likely going to be a difference. What is the difference between a self-insured plan and a fully insured plan? Sure. And this is something most employees don't even know when they look at their health plan. And oftentimes I even talk to companies that don't know what their plan is. Um, A fully insured plan is what people think of most often as what insurance is, which is the company goes to a health plan provider or an insurer. And it's usually one of the big ones like Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or Cigna or Highmark. uh, And they pay a monthly premium. and And after that happens, the insurance company pays all the claims and all the medical benefits on a go forward basis. And so that's what you think of as insurance, right? Um, So fully insured, the company pays a premium, and then the insurer is responsible for all claims. Under a self-insured plan, the company hires an administrator to kind of run all of their claims and use all the in-network providers, but the company at the end of the day is paying medical claims. So um, every time an employee goes to the doctor, the, it's the company who pays the claim. And so if everyone got sick at the same time, the company is responsible. Um, about two-thirds of employers have self-insured plans, and usually the larger employers have self-insured plans. The cutoff tends to be between 500 and 2,000 employees. But if you have under 500 employees, you tend to have a fully insured plan. If you have over 2,000, it tends to be a self-insured plan. Uh, but there's no hard rule of what employers have to have to offer. Is that more because of financial considerations or administration ease? It's, usually it's financial considerations. I mean, when you have a small employee group, there's the risk that a lot of your a high percentage of your employees all get sick at the same time. And then the company would be on the hook for high medical claims all at the same time. All right. And so we're going to get into a little bit, you know, how the difference between self-insured and fully insured plans will impact this discussion about um, providing travel and other uh, abortion related expenses. But you mentioned ERISA, another one of those great acronyms. (laughs) 
Uh, and to ask you for a brief definition of what ERISA is would probably be like asking you to describe the tax code in under a minute. But very briefly, for those of us who are not dealing with ERISA regularly, what is ERISA? So ERISA stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. And it's a very broad statute that generally governs employee benefit plans. Um, some, some religious organizations like church plans and government organizations are exempt from ERISA, but almost every private employer is subject to ERISA. Um, the purpose was at the time ERISA was passed in 1974 was to create one federal statute that governs all benefit plans so that employers with employees in, in all 50 states or even just multiple states just have one set of rules for benefit plans that they have to follow. So uh, going back to the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs, the Supreme Court just said that the states need to be the ones to regulate the abortion issue. Um, so on this issue, say an employer wants to provide travel and other expense assistance through its insurance plan, can the states prohibit them from doing that? In other words, is ERISA a federal statute? Uh, is that going to impact states' ability to prohibit or not an employer that wants to provide these types of expenses? So the answer to that question depends, and, and this is why we explained the difference between a self-insured plan and a fully insured plan. ERISA has a preemption of state laws that affect employee benefit plans. Uh, but one of the exceptions to the ERISA preemption is for state that is an exception that gives states the ability to regulate insurance. Uh, and the way the courts have interpreted that provision is that it says states can regulate benefit plans if the plan is a fully insured plan. Uh, but ERISA preemption applies to all self-insured plans. Um, and what that means on a go-forward basis is states can regulate any any plan and, and say what a plan can offer or not offer if it is fully insured. Um, but a self-insured plan would receive ERISA preemption and state law would not apply to any self-insured plan. And so to be clear, when we're talking about preemption, again, I don't want to assume too much of all the listeners, that means that you know, federal ERISA is uh, itself the only voice on that particular subject from a federal standpoint. You cannot have an inconsistent uh, or otherwise a state law that addresses the same subject matter that ERISA is attempting to address. Correct. You can't, and, and even where ERISA is silent, um, any state law would be preempted. And the reason gets back to the purpose of ERISA, which was to allow employers who are subject, who are employees all throughout the all throughout the country to be subject only to one set of rules and to have one set of, of provisions. And so it would preempt state law for self-insured plans. Chris. I would just follow on to that. And in, 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 although ERISA certainly preempts, um, you know, uh, state law with respect, with respect to the self-insured plans itself, it doesn't uh, preempt state law with respect to the providers who provide services under that plan. And as we know, although the federal government controls a lot of provider behavior through Medicare and to a certain extent, Medicaid, a lesser extent, you know, the regulation of providers is a very state law centric exercise. So, you know, that and, and anybody who's run a plan can tell you, you can cover all you want. Now you're going to have different states, and so there will be availability, but you can cover all you want. But without providers to provide the services, you don't really have true coverage. So, you know, the states and, and the providers in these laws in Texas and other, they're the, they're the um, you know, 
clearly in the crosshairs of these uh, laws that are coming out now on the heels of the uh, decision. It's a great point. And certainly the concern of employers goes beyond simply whether state laws either allow or prohibit these types of travel or other benefits being provided. Employers are also asking about potential civil, even criminal liability if the company were to provide these types of benefits. For example, I know Texas lawmakers, uh, David, in your great home state there, uh, are talking about imposing criminal liability on company executives and even perhaps permitting shareholders to sue the company if money is spent to make it easier to access abortions. So um, in, in this preemption discussion, uh, and again, assuming that these types of benefits are provided through the employer's insurance program, would ERISA preclude states from imposing their will on the criminal liability front, Rob? Yeah, so this is an area we actually don't know how courts would react, and it's a little bit scary for companies. Um, one of the exceptions that's little used and not well known into ERISA's preemption provision is that ERISA preemption does not apply to criminal statutes of what they call general applicability. Um, as far as I know, I've only seen this provision being triggered in two types of cases. Um, the first is where there's theft or embezzlement of ERISA plan assets. And that's a situation where you literally have someone stealing from a 401k plan or a pension plan. And then they try to argue that they can't be prosecuted uh, for that statute because ERISA preempts those laws. And that's where this ERISA can't prevent, uh, ERISA can't preempt a, a criminal statute of general applicability. The second kind is a slayer statute, which is a statute that a state might have that prevents someone from inheriting an account uh, if they if they murder or kill the person that they're inheriting from. And so where that comes into play is if a spouse kills his or her spouse and then tries to inherit the pension plan or 401k plan. That's the other scenario where an ERISA an ERISA preemption argument wouldn't work because it's a criminal statute of general applicability. We can't find, and, and Chris, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, we haven't been able to find any case where any other type of criminal statute um, would work uh, against an HR staff where ERISA would not preempt. Um, but all, along the same lines, we've never seen a state prosecute an HR staff for just implementing a benefit plan. So it's really interesting because you know, I think there's going to be a lot of litigation over that exact term general applicability, because I'm trying to think how you could make, you know, a prohibition on this type of travel generally applicable. It seems to me there's a pretty good argument. This isn't generally applicable. This is targeted exactly at the plans that we're trying to preempt. And you're trying to regulate something on a very specific basis for a very specific group of, uh, you know, or, or a very, very specific specific activity which was specifically designed to be preempted by risk so i do think you know you'll, you'll have to you're going to have states being have to be creative in the drafting to set up the best argument they can that no this isn't just a way to regulate a health plan because i think that wouldn't pass muster well, based on the language but you know this is a broader like embezzlement just doesn't apply to health plans it applies to any business that there is you know the death slayer statute is not a health plan or an insurance related. Don't these statutes sometimes apply broader than the health plan? For example, and if there was an Uber driver who took someone suppose, to an abortion. I suppose. But when you're talking about executives of a, of a health plan, you know, that's a little bit different than the person who actually drives the person there, I suppose. 
David. Yeah, I mean, being from Texas, since we're one of the sort of the, unfortunately, the, the leading uh, cases of this, I mean, there, there's a lot of concern in Texas over, you know, the, the broad types of laws restricting assistance for someone, you know, for example, that got an abortion and, and sort of to Rob's point about the Uber driver, you know, when it's a broad statute like that, you can certainly see how an employer who provides some sort of you know, financial assistance to someone um, ostensibly could be prosecuted under one of those laws. And it, it's not specific to employer plans. I mean, the, the law is very broad and would apply to any sort of assistance, whether it's transportation, financial um, or, or, you know, medical assistance for that matter. So, you know, I, I, this is probably going to be a huge area for litigation, you know, especially in some of the, uh, you know. Then, then do you get into providing, you know, do you, do you get away from maybe liability by providing travel for more services? So I can say I'm providing travel for any service. I don't know if it's an abortion or anything else. Right. No, I think I that's know. where most employers are going to push towards is trying to have some like a content neutral type of policy that doesn't. Right maybe particularly single out of a particular procedure, you know, would, would probably be the way to go there. Yeah. And, and as a side note, I should mention, it would be very difficult for a company to add travel services only for abortion. Um, there's a bunch of reasons why. The biggest one is there's an act called the Mental Health Parity Act, which at a high level just requires that any health plan um, that covers any regular medical or surgical benefits has to have an equivalent benefit for mental health. And so if you were to cover travel services for abortion, the Mental Health Parity Act would require you to have an equivalent travel benefit for mental health as well. And you're right. We are, David. We are going to be seeing, uh, we already are seeing um, uh, court cases pop up on these things. Meanwhile, the states have been uh, extremely fast uh, in um, enacting laws dealing with this issue. Some of them were triggered by a reversal of Roe versus Wade, and some were not. Um, but we're now seeing court issue decisions uh, on injunction motions around the country in a couple of states that are um, prohibiting the state legislatures from proceeding with bans uh, on abortion um, in some cases. So there's going to be a lot more that we're going to be seeing, certainly in the litigation front. There are so many layers to this. Chris, uh, if an employer provides abortion-related expenses to its employees, I think it necessarily follows that someone is either asking about or receiving information about an employee's medical and abortion-related information. So that sort of triggers privacy and confidentiality concerns, uh, both from a legal standpoint and, frankly, a practical one. Let's talk about HIPAA for a moment, another great acronym we have here in labor and employment. Like we did with ERISA, can you give us a very brief summary of what HIPAA does cover and what it does not cover? I think there are a lot of myths out there about HIPAA. There, there certainly are. There certainly are, Mike. Um, so, you know, essentially, what HIPAA does, it protects patient identifying information that are held by three types of entities, healthcare providers, something called healthcare clearinghouses, which are basically electronic uh, cr uh, claims processing uh, warehouses, so to speak, a very small segment of the overall employer population, obviously. And then uh, health insurers and health plans. Um, and that's the part that's going to have the general applicability to employers, okay, because information, and again, it's a little bit tricky here with respect to employers, because the information that the, uh, that the employers hold as part of their health plan function is the only information protected by HIPAA. 
So, and again, you can get it to some factual issues, but, you know, if somebody learns of an abortion within an employer through, you know, it has nothing to do with the health plan, they come by that information by, you know, nothing to do with the health plan function. Technically, that's not covered by HIPAA. It's just what comes in and what's held by the plan with respect to uh, the, the health plan function. And if you don't have a health plan as an employer, you don't have, you're not covered by HIPAA at all. And to the extent you're covered, it's only with respect to that plan. So there's a lot of confusion around that, but it's a, you know, fairly limited. It's not just broadly applicable to employers and it doesn't apply to the individual. So when I want to tell you whatever I want to tell you as my employer, and if I walked into, you know, my boss's office today and downloaded to him about every condition I had, psychiatric or otherwise, that's not really protected. If I said, hey, Jeff, I'm coming in to ask about my benefit plan, maybe we have an argument. But if I just do that, that's not necessarily protected. So it's, a, it's, a, it, it's you know, it, it's applicable to uh, employers is really based on the health plan. And um, it's also when it does allow in the in HHS, uh, Health and Human Services, the Federal Department of Health and Human Services that regulates it, but really made this clear uh, just in the last week in response specifically to the uh, decision. And that is that where HIPAA allows disclosure, it's a protective information. In other words, unless there's an exception, you can't release uh uh, plan information. That's that patient identifying information. But where there's an exception, it's permissive. It's not mandatory. So the the secretary went out of Secretary Becerra went out of his way to say, you know, where it says you um, must, you know, you can release information for law enforcement purposes or pursuant to a court order. It doesn't require it. It defaults back to state law there. But HIPAA doesn't require it. So. And that was nothing new, but it was a pronouncement that that HHS made. I don't think that surprised anybody. They went on to say, and it was a real interesting uh, piece, I thought, in this guidance. They went on to say that um, there's also an exception for releasing information where you're going to avert a danger to public health and safety by releasing that information. Somebody's about to, you know, a somebody escaped from a psychiatric hospital and they're about to go kill somebody. You can say this person's dangerous and this is why the doctor can call the police and do that. HHS said that based on legal, uh, based on medical ethics, that revealing that somebody was going to get an abortion in a state where abortion is legal to a law enforcement agency is not a permissible uh, release of information under that exception. Now, what they didn't comment on is what about in states where it's illegal? Uh, they did not comment on that. So that's an interesting piece. So uh, just to give you a flavor of how uh, the, the law applies and, 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 you know, how HHS, which administers the law, uh, has kind of set things up. And so, of course, there's no question that there is a lot of confusion over the scope of, of HIPAA. And, you know, one of the examples that we get all the time is an employee walks in or has a conversation with uh, uh, HR or somebody at the organization. Uh, and even though it may be covered by another statute, say the Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, for an employer to ask certain questions about medical related information of the employee, that's not itself going to be a violation of HIPAA. 
not unless it's related to the health plan. And again, they can ask the questions because if they're acting for the plan, there's some questions that can be asked. And then the individual can, you know, agree not to give it or, or whatever. But it's really HIP is about once that information is being held, protecting it, both through, you know, technical systems, security systems, as well as, you know, your policies for releasing it and when it can be released. David, there's a real practical component here, though. We're talking about, uh, you know, HIPAA and ERISA and all this other stuff. There's a real practical component here in terms of whether employees will likely even feel comfortable raising the issue uh, with employer in terms of, you know, I need travel related expenses to pay for an abortion that I'm planning on going to have. Yeah, I mean, there's 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 actually a slew of issues here. Um, you, you know, one is obviously the medical confidentiality under the ADA. Uh, I, I think, you know, there's a big question here about uh, gender discrimination potentially because, you know, obviously women are, are you know, going to be heavily impacted by this more than men. And there's a religious component, right? I mean, I, I could see, I could absolutely see a case where an employee brings a religious discrimination case arguing that my employer found out that I got an abortion and my employer is vehemently opposed to abortion. And, you know, therefore I was discriminated against, um, you know, based on that view. So, um, there's just lots of ways to which an employer's knowledge that an, that an employee um, it has pursued or is going to pursue an abortion, if that, you know, once you have that knowledge, if it's used in any way to discriminate, to take an adverse employment action, uh, to harass that employee, wh- where the employer could be liable for that. And so just to, uh, Rob, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked to one employer that decided to try and avoid all these issues that they put in a new policy that said, if you want a two day wellness getaway, you can come to the employer and say, we'll pay for travel and hotel for two days, anywhere you want to go with a limit like $2,000 or $2,500, no questions asked, right? So if you want to go and you don't tell the employer what it's for, so it could be for an abortion or it could be for a yoga retreat in the Himalayas, you know? And so that's the most expensive option, right? Because everyone in the company is eligible for it, male and female, and that would be a taxable benefit, but it sort of avoids all of the other issues, right? And even in a state like Texas, the employer has no idea why the employee would use that or why they would go away. I mean, I don't know anybody who's getting to the Himalayas in just two days and back, but, uh, you know, I certainly get the example. Um, so just finishing off the uh, this, this privacy issue, uh, Chris, I mean, what, what concerns should employers be mindful of in this area of privacy and confidentiality? Yeah, I think there's two real areas. I mean, I think we're, we maybe talk about a little bit and certainly been talked about a lot generally. Um, you know, given the fact that we're in a time of, uh, you know, this is a divisive issue, number one, we're a time of, you know, political activism in the workplaces. And some pl- people may feel emboldened by, you know, if they feel a certain way about abortion, may be emboldened by the decision and what states are doing to uh, prohibit abortion. So this might not be a bad time for plans to look at their, you know, security systems, passwords, and all these things that, you know, are kind of block and tackle, but kind of reevaluate from a HIPAA standpoint, the threat from within, so to speak, and get back to education. Because, you know, whenever there's a sea change like this, people start going to conclusions that things are now changed in a lot of different ways. So I think to lock that down, take the opportunity to make sure that information's locked down, because there you got people who might think that they have a right to release it. And secondly, you may have people who, for one reason or other, are really looking for it. Uh, just given the agendas here. So that's number one. The other thing is, um, you know, particularly 
just in case, really understand the block and tackle of if somebody shows up knocking on your door, one reason or another for health plan information, you know, know how you react, know the difference between a subpoena, you know, those, those people who have the responsibility for releasing information, taking those requests, understand the block and tackle of how you release, when you have to release, you know, when uh, you might, you, you know, you might fight a release or, or go to court to prevent it. So, you know, because those things can happen with emergency, there's a little bit of tension there. So understand those things. Those would be two things that I would, I would look at closely now and it's not a bad thing to always understand those but you know you have some reason to now great suggestions and, and so i want to pivot for a moment um the supreme court's dobbs decision uh has prompted other i think significant considerations for employers beyond what we've been talking about in terms of benefits and other assistance that employers may provide to employees uh david you know i think it's fair to say the past several years, even before this decision, we have seen much more blurring of the line between work life and personal life when it comes to employee discussion and activity. Social justice movements is just one example, but abortion and abortion rights is certainly at the top of the list of issues that people obviously feel strongly about. And oftentimes the debate impacts or it's perceived to impact the workplace. Um, Heated discussions or comments that may be made in the office, employees posting comments in support of or in opposition to the Supreme Court's decision on social media, employees may be walking out in protest or engaging in some march on the issue. Uh, employers need to be careful here when it comes to taking acts, action against employee speech and conduct. You agree? Yeah, I mean, there's there's just, again, so many different laws that could pop up here. Um, you know, and, and many states have have laws that protect employees who engage in lawful off-duty conduct, right? So that could obviously include engaging in, you know, protesting and things like that, as long as it's lawful. Uh, we've had some really interesting debates in the employment law world over, you know, when protests become unlawful, right, with January 6th and some other issues. So, uh, you know, there, there's increasingly you know, pressure on employers to, um, to, to not take action against employees who lawfully protest and engage in, in you know, civil activities. Um, you know, on the flip side, there, there are a lot of employers who feel very strongly about, you know, employees who make controversial statements on social media and trying to, you know, minimize that sort of disruption in the workplace. And you may want to take action against somebody who speaks out. But on this particular issue, you know, one of the problems is, again, it crosses over into religious and gender grounds. Uh, it's one thing to take action against someone who posts something offensive on social media that's related to a non-protected class type of issue. But, uh, you know, again, th this issue crosses over into at least two uh, protected classes where someone could argue, you know, you're, let's just say you posted something, um, you know, certainly uh, against the Supreme Court uh, uh, decision, um, uh, you, you know, where, where you take a shot at, at someone's religious beliefs, for example, or on the flip side, if someone, you know, uh, affirms it strongly because of their religious beliefs and the other side gets upset, you can easily see how that could de devolve into a religious battle, um, which is not something where an employer wants to be, you know, using as a criteria to make an employment decision. So, so it's a real tough one for employers to, to wade into this issue without, you know, running afoul of the law. And we've talked about uh, a lot on this podcast. I know you deal with this quite a bit when it comes to the National Labor Relations Act, the NLRA, uh, protected concerted activity. I mean, aside from sort of these individual state laws that deal with off work, off duty conduct, protected concerted activity is something that particularly this NLRB uh, is real mindful of. 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, the, the I, I mean, I think we've seen some in relation to, I think the favorite one that I was going around was the Amazon employee list of demands in relation to um, the Dobbs decision about asking for, you know, specific things that they expected from the company in, in response to that. Um, you know, there's nothing more obvious as protected concerted activity than a, li- you know, a list of demands from a group of employees acting concertedly in regards to, you know, employment uh, terms and conditions, right? So this is like a quintessential, you know, where there's no union involved, it's just a group of employees basically acting as a union and protected under federal law. Yeah. And so as we've said quite a bit, uh, I think one of the big takeaways here on this issue is employers should not be and cannot be knee jerk in their reactions simply because they may not like the particular statements or the particular conduct uh, of their employees. They really, it's not to say that they can't take some sort of action depending on a lot of factors, but they should be analyzing the situation as opposed to, as I said, being knee jerk in their reaction and just disciplining and maybe even terminating it, uh, terminating the employee outright. Uh, But I'm really interested, David, in, in the flip side of this coin as well. While we certainly are seeing more activism by employees, I also am seeing more and more companies taking very public positions on these highly charged issues more than ever. Um, for example, Disney is battling in Florida because of a position that it took on that state's so-called don't say gay bill. Uh, companies are proactively circulating internal emails and memoranda to their employees on the Russia and Ukraine conflict, on gun control. Are you also seeing companies becoming more willing to express opinions or take a position with employees on political or social issues? And what should employers be careful about if they do? Yeah, I mean, I I still think most companies try to avoid political discussions, religious discussions at work. Right. I mean, there's that that's obviously the old adage. And and, and many employers and many uh, business owners still adhere to that. And I think there's some wisdom in that um, thought process. Um, but, but, you know, increasingly many don't, I mean, for whatever reason, maybe pressure from outside parties or even, you know, the internal, the strong internal beliefs of the, of the C-suite, um, you know, there are many employers and, and, and executives who want to take positions, feel like it's the right thing to do. And employees in many cases expect that. So, um, you know, I, again, there's, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. The problem becomes is if, 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 an, if, an, if management takes a very, pro view on an issue that crosses into, again, religion, gender, racial lines, then someone who's on the other end of that issue, if something happens to them at work, that, that could be evidence that, you know, my, the management is against me because I'm of a different political view. Um, obviously, there's also the political fallout of, you know, certainly once a company becomes political, the, the folks that are on the other side of that issue um, you, you, you end up with boycotts, you have customer boycotts, social media boycotts, governmental action on the other side, like we've seen uh, in Florida, and, and you know, that can create problems um, for the company. Chris? I was just going to say, I mean, I think a lot of it goes back to the summer of 2020, in my mind. I mean, I think we saw a sea change on, you know, companies uh, willing to kind of jump into the political fray a little bit more. That was, you know, maybe not as divisive, quite as divisive an issue as this. But, uh, you know, that that to me, you know, we've seen a sea change at the court. Um, and, we, you know, I think we've seen a sea change in in, in activism uh, at the corporate level. I think it's important to be respectful, though. Right. I mean, it, it, most employers are not, um, you know, completely um, uh, homogeneous in terms of within the, 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 the you know, that, that that employer. Right. So 
most employers find themselves made up of employees of different backgrounds, of different yep. parts of the country, of different political um, mindsets. So um, it's it's in most cases counterproductive to take a you know very aggressive view on a highly controversial issue. Um, so you know if, if an employer is going to take a, a position on something, you know it's usually better to try to do it in a respectful, productive way. Um, and and again, I think that that certainly. You know, some companies have gone in that direction. I think some have done it better than others. No question about it. And, you know, buried may be an overstatement, David, but somewhat buried in the decision uh, by the Supreme Court is Justice Thomas positing that perhaps it doesn't end here with the abortion issue for the Supreme Court. And perhaps there are other constitutional protections that are now on the table to be revisited um, do you think we are likely to see other precedents fall in the near future? Is this just the first domino? Well, I'm not, you're not going to get me to start making predictions on what the Supreme Court's <laughs> going to do. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, and I don't know that anybody knows. I, I think, you know, as an employment lawyer, the, the thing that always makes our job interesting, and I think is a challenge for employers, is that whatever is going on in the world, in the country, uh, the news of the day almost always impacts the workplace. All of these issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's if there are changes down the road on, you know, contraception or uh, same-sex marriage or interracial marriage or all the, the, the things that people are worried about that may or may not ever happen. Um, you know, again, those things, if, if anything, would get punted back to the states, you know. So is the trend of the, the Supreme Court pushing issues back to the state going to continue? Very possibly. And is that going to make it harder and harder for employers who want to have, you know, policies that are consistent across, you know, multiple jurisdictions? Yeah. And I think that that's really the theme of all this is it's, it's harder to be an employer. It's and it's becoming increasingly harder to be an employer, especially if you're in multiple states, because we're increasingly divided as a country. So we have radically different laws in different geographies. And not to mention that, you know, I mean, yes, it, it's, it's going to be imposing a much more significant burden on employers, particularly multi-jurisdictional employers. Um, but we can't discount the impact that it will have on individuals and employees as well. Um, and particularly perhaps certain groups, minority groups, for example, who may not have access, uh, right. certain types of, uh, whether it's medical care or certain types of other rights and privileges that, uh, to some extent they've enjoyed as a national constitutional protection. Yeah, and, and it raises interesting questions of what obligations employers have to, to address those things, right? I mean, if it's the right thing to do and you want, you feel like you have an obligation to your employees to help out. Um, you know, this is somewhat uncharted ground, right? I mean, this is, uh, inter you know, it's, 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 it's an interesting time in our history where, where you know, uh, employers feel like they have social ethical obligations that perhaps, you know, that, that really wasn't a thing, you know, five years ago. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd love to have this as a 10 part series because I feel like we could just keep talking about, all of the issues and, and speculate a little bit. This is, it's really fascinating and, and obviously so impactful to so many people. Um, but as we wrap up this discussion, and uh, it's safe to say that this will not be for the last time, uh, I'd love some concluding thoughts from each of you on what questions you think will hopefully be answered in the coming weeks and months on the impact of Dobbs from the perspective of healthcare benefits and general labor and employment and I guess more to the point as we close, what should the listeners of today's episode take back to their organizations? Chris, let me start with you. Yeah, so um, as far as taking back to the organization, I think we've talked a lot about it. It's going to depend, we've talked a lot about it. It's going to depend on where you're located. I mean, if you're in the certain states that are at the forefront of prohibiting abortion, you've got immediate 
you know, very real compliance issues that you've got to deal with. But generally, um, you know, I think the organizations need to uh, understand that this is, you know, very fluid right now. It's just out. There are way more questions than answers. Don't try to answer every question, but, you know, start to have somebody in your organization who get or more than you know, maybe one person who really has a full lay of the land of all the ways that this is going to impact, because we're really just figuring out that this is going to impact a particular organization and pay attention to these developments, but really start to learn the issues as much more than try and find the answers right now. Uh, you know, and as far as what those answers are, I think, you know, Particularly, I think you're going to see a lot of questions about, you know, it's going to come back, I think, a lot to the Commerce Clause. There's going to be a lot of questions about these inner, I keep going back to kind of these interstate dealings. Um, it's, you know, the, these interstate uh, rules kind of raised their head a little bit in the pandemic with uh, states loose, lax, you know, loosening up license uh, requirements so people could treat people in states that were going through heavy uh, COVID, um, uh, COVID times, so to speak. So, uh, you know, I think those are the issues that really, to me, uh, are really going to be the most interesting as we come up. How much, you know, what what's going to happen to all this cross-state stuff and how much are we going to allow one particular state to hold people who may not even be in that state responsible for uh, for violations of these laws one way or another. Rob, some parting thoughts from you. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the biggest issue is for employers to go back to either their insurer or their carrier and figure out, uh, number one, does their plan cover abortion and do they want to cover it? Uh, and number two, is there already a travel provision in their plan? Um, many plans already cover travel for medical services that is not available in their geographic area, right? The most common example being some kind of complicated surgery or complicated transplant. And so the plan may already cover that kind of travel. And so it could be if you don't do anything and the plan covers abortion and abortion isn't available in someone's location, the plan may already have a provision um, to cover travel for, for abortion in that circumstance. Yeah, and then we're going to want to look at the uh, the existing insurance plans, as you said, uh, whether and to what extent changes need to be made to existing plans. And then certainly, you know, we need to figure out in the states that you're operating, what are the laws saying? What are the courts right. doing with respect to those laws? And, you know, is there particular uh, liability imposed in those jurisdictions or is it the type of issue that is going to be preempted by uh, federal ERISA? These are things that we should start looking at now. Uh, David, we uh, we end with you in terms of a general labor and employment uh, parting thought on this. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think this is a good gut check moment for for most, you know, certainly multi-state large employers as to, you know, what is our policy going to be on these hot button political social justice issues, right? Like, where does our company stand on these things? Do we want to take a position? Do we, you know, how active do we want to be? Um, are we treating our employees fairly in terms of our social media policy? And, uh, you know, do we, do we want to bring these issues, you know, into our workplace or not? I mean, I, I think there's lots of companies that are going to have different views on how to answer those questions. But the key as an employment lawyer, I think, as a successful company and HR team within those companies is consistency, right? It's very hard to be outspoken on one issue on one side and then not on the other and crack down. So I think, you know, employees expect to have some consistency 
as to how their employers react. So it's not important that you run out and react tomorrow. It's thinking about how are we as an organization going to react when these things happen? Are, are, are we going to be involved politically or not? And again, just, just trying to, to be consistent and have a good message is important. Great uh, way to end. There's certainly a lot more questions. We're a little over a week from this decision. Uh, a lot more questions than answers. But as you said, David, and I couldn't agree more, it's important to give serious thought to these issues because what your organization does do or does not do will have real impact on your business and on your workforce. No question about it. Uh, David Barron, Rob Kaplan, Chris Raffley, uh, thank you so much uh, for having this conversation and for joining in the discussion. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure we will be back to you uh, as this issue continues to develop. So thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Mike. Yep. Thank you. Well, as I said, there is so much to unwrap here, so much to discuss and debate. I think we all can agree, if nothing else, on the fact that the Dobbs decision has really changed things quite dramatically, both on the societal level and certainly when it comes to employment law and the relationship between employers and employees. Like all other issues we discuss, however, this is one where organizations should be thinking about the nature of its business, the nature of its workforce, and what it wants to do from a messaging standpoint, from a practice and policy standpoint. Give some consideration to these issues and develop a plan at that point. We really appreciate, uh, as always, you listening to the podcast. I hope you, your colleagues, and your family continue to stay safe and healthy. And until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.